Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Most of us have gotten pretty far by moving fast, doing more, and striving for the next achievement. But when you're called upon to lead, ugh, it's a whole new ball game. You're forced to look in the mirror, face your hard stuff, and grow into your full self, or you'll never lead others to do the same. And to get there, you might need a reboot. That is the title of a fascinating new book by my guest today. I'm amped to have Jerry Colonna on the show, author of Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, Fresh Off the Presses. Jerry is a venture capitalist turned executive coach who Gimlet Media dubbed the CEO Whisperer. Reboot is also the name of the leadership development firm in which he co-owns and is the CEO. And Jerry's work is dedicated to helping top entrepreneurs all over the world lead with humanity, resilience, and equanimity. Jerry is going to tell us how rebooting our minds helps us to see through the BS of our work lives so that we can reset our goals and reconnect with our deepest selves and with each other. So let's dive in. All right. So I'm sitting here with Jerry Colonna, author of Reboot. Jerry, welcome to the Love and Action podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really a delight to be here. It, it's mutual, Jerry. And as I always do, I start by asking this question. Uh, when you get up in the morning, what makes you smile these days? I would say that uh, I'll answer the question this way. Most mornings when I'm at my best, begin with uh, fresh ground coffee. Uh, Lord knows I need that. But more important, journaling and meditation. Mm. And uh, I always start the journaling session with the question, how am I feeling? Mm. And so when you ask the question, what makes me smile in the morning? The way I would answer it is what grounds me and sets me up for my day is that kind of check-in. How the hell am I doing? Mm. Because 90% of the time I'm a mess. <laughs> and yeah. what makes me happy is to just, uh, what makes me smile is to come right back to who I am. Yeah. To the best that I can to just think about my day. And, you know, I close a meditation session uh, with what's called the four immeasurables, which is uh, may all beings enjoy happiness and the causes of happiness. May they be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. It goes on. But that's the core wish. And so I suppose if you had to boil it down, it would be that. And it's great because we have already touched on so many themes of the book. Uh, so let's let's dive in. Sure. And, and let's let's start kind of uh, skimming the surface a little bit. Maybe give us the thirty thousand foot level of the of the book. What would be a good summary, Jerry, for reboot? So 
I have this basic understanding that came about from doing close work both on myself, but also with clients. And that is that writ large, um, we have two choices in life as it relates to the normal vagaries, the normal ups and downs of life. We can be wiped out by them or we can use them to grow. And when you start with that basic premise that you have that choice, and then you apply that to the work that we do as coaches, you realize that leadership with all of its vagaries represents an opportunity for people to complete the process of becoming the adult that they were born to be. And to me, that statement alone can alter the framing and the way we relate to work. And then there's a bonus that goes along with that, which is, and leaders who actually choose to do that lead better. And so that then, and by leading better, they then create the space for those of us who are being led to use the vagaries and challenges of work to complete our process of growing. That's the core message of the book. And it's told through um, deeply personal memoir-like stories from my own life yeah. and composite stories uh, and some true-to-life stories of the lives of my clients. Mm. Because I believe that we learn best through stories and examples and modeling yeah. rather than finger-wagging and being told. Yeah, so... Speaking of deeply personal story, uh, I want you to take us back to 2002, which was a, a very painful time for you when you, you said that you hit your emotional bottom. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when you realized maybe your own reboot awakening. So uh, walk us through that. What happened? Well, I'll, I'll have to set it up with a little bit of yeah. context. Sure. Right? So by that point in my life, I was in my mid to late 30s. I had experienced a tremendous amount of external success, um, approbation as a venture capitalist, as an early investor, an investor in the early iterations of the internet. Um, I had experienced a certain amount of financial success. And the more success I had, the more pain I felt. <laughs> and I don't think it's a coincidence that I was approaching 40. Um, I don't think that, uh, I think it was, just, it, was in a, it was a confluence of many, many factors. But from where I sit, the most powerful driver was that the kind of the kabuki show of the life that I was leading was falling apart. From my teenage years through my 20s, I had learned how to play the game. And I had been rewarded for being the good guy, being the smart guy, being the talented guy, being the whiz kid, the wunderkind, the wunderkind, <laughs> until the very, very loud voice in my head kept saying, forgive me, I'm about to curse. This is fucking bullshit. Right. You are not who you are pretending to be. And if no one else knows it, I, whoever the I is, knows it. So you put all that together um, and then you have a backdrop of 
my deciding not to continue uh, working with my then partner, Fred Wilson. You have the 9-11 attacks in September. Um, you have this sort of sense that the world is doesn't matter how much success you have until it sort of culminates, if you will, in this realization that the outward behavior that I was living with did not match my inner sense of values and core. And it was at that point that the depression with which I had been struggling for a, a few years came roaring back and I became suicidal. And uh, that's the moment of the emotional bottom, rock bottom. Huh. The context is important. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then you have this term called a radical self-inquiry. Mm. You chose this term to describe really uh, the most of us to when we, we get to that point in our lives as startup founders, entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs, or just pro working professionals in general, mm. where we don't, we're not even aware of our need to slow down. And, and you say, stop the spinning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And stop and, the bullshitting. There you go. So our need to just be still and start to look inward. Mm. So unpack that for us. Radical self-inquiry. So it's a term I coined really almost out of frustration to describe what it was that I was asking people to do. Sometimes people get fixated on the term as if it's a methodology. It's not. I mean, it's kind of nice if I could make a business out of trademarking, right? It's like, but that's silly. What it means to me is the process by which all of the delusions and all of the maths and all of the play acting gets stripped away. And this is really key with compassion. Because sometimes when I ask people to start asking themselves these deeper questions implicit in that term, they use that for further self-criticism. And that's not the point. Strip away those masks with compassion and skill and a kind of fierce bravery to tell yourself the truth. And I often say it's radical because we tend not to do it. We tend to go along with the spinning. So everybody's walking around. I'm speaking in extremes here, but everybody walks around. You know, I'm a big fan of poetry and T.S. Eliot wrote this brilliant poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. One of the first lines of which is, people come and go talking of Michelangelo. And what he's doing is he's talking about the nonsense of a dinner party where people just go, oh, what do you do? Oh, I run a startup. Oh, yeah, we're crushing it. Oh, we're... Oh, no, no. Bullshit. Stop. Stop. Let's be human beings together. Hey, I'm happy today. I saw my son. He's just back from London. He's got a light in his eye. That made me smile. Or I'm scared. I've got another son who's in Thailand. I don't know where the hell he is. He's fine, but I'm still scared because he's 21. Right? That's human. That's real. Yeah. So radical self-inquiry, this first step 
if we take a step back and we say, what is this journey into adulthood all about? What is this journey into fully actualized leadership all about? Well, can we just begin with acknowledging where we are and just pause right there? Just the way, quite frankly, I do my morning. I start my mornings with a journaling session. Yeah. This morning, I feel tired. Okay. That's how I feel. That's who I am right now. Yeah. Let me go back to the mask. Are you implying that we're deceiving ourselves when we wear these masks? And the second part of my question is, why do we feel like we need to put on these masks? What are we afraid of? All right. So I'm going to answer the second question first. Okay. Okay. I think that what happens... And we start this in early childhood. If you think of a, of a baby, right? A baby has the most, as Maslow spoke about, has these most basic human needs. What are those basic human needs? Don't kill me. <laughs> I mean, that's what the species is like organized around. Don't kill me. Feed me. Take care of me. I'm going to start to smile at you because what I notice is if I smile at you, you feed me. Now, I'm being reductionist here, of course, and I'm, I'm, I'm being provocative in some ways. But we begin very, very early on. We get socialized to, as I was saying before, play a game. And those of us who grew up with parents who may have been challenged in their assumption of parental duties, learn very, very early on how to get love, or as I say in the book, love, safety, and belonging by thwarting and distorting who we are. And then society kicks in and the whole thing gets writ large. And, you know, as I often talk about high achievers, they have figured out early on how to get an A from life and they lather rinse repeat that way and they call that life all along never really paying attention to or being asked by someone who loves them how are you feeling how's your heart are you sad do you feel love do you feel shame what's going on for you So then we learn a very, very important lesson. Don't even ask that of ourselves. You know, I have this funny reputation that I often make fun of, which is of making people cry. In fact, Wired Magazine wrote a a story, the headline of which was, this man makes founders cry. And I always joke now when I do a talk and I say, you want to know the secret of how I make people cry? I ask them this really difficult question. I say, how are you? but I ask it as if I give a shit because I do. And when you slow people down, a funny thing happens. They feel. Mm. And when we feel often, not always often, what we feel is sadness. (laughs) And we're so conditioned to make sadness wrong because it will mean a threat to our love, safety, and belonging, 
that we don't even bother to ask. So that was a long-winded response to your question, but I hope that answered it. Yeah, well, it does, but it puts this conversation in the light of if so many of us are walking around sad, mm. where, you know, you mentioned the outward behavior does not match our inner values or what we truly stand for. Mm. How do we take down the sadness? There may be uh, barriers to us experiencing the authenticity of being sad with yourself and just kind of wallowing in your own sadness for a while because there may be healing there, some recovery. Mm-hmm. That needs to happen before we get to happiness. Maybe I already answered my own question, but how do you get from the sad once you realize, oh, this is really what I'm feeling. I'm sad or I'm depressed. Right. To experience the fullness of vitality and joy and peace and happiness. I think uh, the answer lies in every single wisdom tradition I've ever encountered. Mm call it a religion, call it a philosophy. I have yet to encounter a wisdom tradition, Eastern or Western, that says, could you please bullshit your way through life? That's the awesome thing to do, right? (laughs) Every single wise tradition has said to us, know thyself, experience thyself, be with thyself. Uh, one of the core teachings of Jesus, for example, is to love oneself wholly. He doesn't say, only love the nice bits. Only love the part that makes everybody else happy. The whole Megillah. Yeah. Right? Rumi, this being human is a guest house. Welcome it all in. The wholeness of who we are. So if we start with that basic notion and we understand that all our wise elders have been saying the same thing to us for millennia. Okay. Here's another soon-to-be elder, me, saying, you don't get to cherry-pick life experiences. You have basically two choices with feelings. You're numb to them or you experience them. What we try to do is give me all the love and the joy. You hold on to all that sadness and fear. I don't want to feel that stuff. It doesn't work that way. Hmm. And so we speed up. Because if we slow down and stand still, we feel feelings. If we're a leader, We feel doubt, uncertainty, overwhelm, loneliness. Oh, I don't want to feel those feelings. Let me send some more email. (laughs) Let me give out more assignments. Let me go faster. I'm imagining that maybe some of our listeners right now are probably going, like, hitting them at their core and they're saying, yeah, I wear masks. Yeah. So if you want to start your journey to radical self-inquiry, is there a first step? Be gentle. Mm. Be gentle. If a listener 
is saying, yeah, yeah, he's saying something that's true. I've been wearing a mask all my life. Understand that you're human. And welcome to the club. And that you did that, and you do that to survive. And it was brilliant. It was a wonderful survival strategy. And if you take off the mask, you can always put it back on. (laughs) You can always protect yourself. But if in slowing down and paying attention to the fact that that mask is this, you start to feel, say, sadness, it might be rooted in the fact that your soul is not being paid attention to. Because behind that whole mask is the you that you've been protecting all of your life. Derek Walcott, in a beautiful poem called Love After Love, says, take down the pictures, look into the mirror, and see the person who has loved you all of your life. That person. You asked, we got to this by talking about my moment of decline. I had a choice. I could either continue to go, and in that case, I could have killed myself, which is where my mind was. Mm-hmm. But I chose instead to live. And it, in choosing to live, that means that there are going to be days when I feel like crap. And just because I feel like crap doesn't mean I am crap. It means in this moment, I'm having a hard time. And if I remember the wisdom of my wise psychoanalyst, Dr. Sayers, she would say in Hebrew, which I won't attempt, this too shall pass. Mm. Which is wisdom from the Bible. This too shall pass. I'm thinking that if I'm listening and I'm in a leadership role, Mm. what's the importance of this process, dropping the mask, and beginning the process of radical self-inquiry. Why is this so crucial to leadership? Yeah, I, I laugh often because oftentimes I or my company will be called in and we'll get assignments like, there's not enough trust in the leadership team. It's like, hmm, interesting. We struggle with innovation. We seem to not be able to get out of our way. And I'll laugh and I'll say, well, are you telling the truth? And they look at me and say, well, what what do you mean? It's like, well, how can you build trust if those who have power don't tell the truth? And they say, well, I always tell them the facts. It's like, "Uh yeah, you do. But when the facts are spoken and the feelings that are implied don't match and that dissonance emerges, trust is eroded. Hmm. And so... I tell a story in the book about uh, going to the movies and, and being really blown away by a scene that happened in the movie to the point where I'm crying and I'm in tears because I'm remembering something from my childhood. And my brilliant son, Michael, was sitting next to me. He was 13 years old. And he's like, my dad is crying in the movies. What the hell is going on? Right? He's freaked out. And he finally says to me something really brilliant. He says, 
dad, you might as well tell me what's going on. Cause if not, I'm going to make shit up and it's going to be negative about me. Right. Yeah. So here we, so take it into a leadership thing, right? This is the leadership podcast. So take it into a leadership context. You have power, whether you know it or not, you have power. You walk into a room, you could have status power from your role or a role power, or you can have status power. I'm a white cisgendered male. I have power just by walking down the goddamn street that I don't even recognize I have. Okay. So I walk in, I have power. I feel like crap. I don't tell anybody I feel like crap. And I start making pronouncements or more specifically, I start sending emails. Because that constitutes work these days, right? I send a bunch of emails out. It comes in. There's feelings being transmitted. Those feelings trigger old stories in my colleagues. My colleagues sit there and say, what did I do wrong? I'm shit. I can't believe how also is. And then if they're really trying to preserve themselves, they get aggressive. This guy's such a jerk. I can't believe what's going on. Now, go ahead. Try to create something really innovative and wonderful. Go do some amazing work. Go ahead. Right? Want to know what gets in the way? Right? Self-deception. Mm-hmm. Mutual, consensual, collective deception. The product works. No, it doesn't. The customers love us. No, they don't. We have plenty of cash. No, you don't. Or worse, the product sucks. No, it doesn't. Customers hate us. No, they don't. Right? I mean, there are all these collective delusions that an organization operates under rooted in the fact that those who hold power are scared to actually confront themselves. Hmm. And the most basic truth that they're oftentimes afraid to confront is the fact that they're not as terrible as they think they are, nor are they as great as they think they are. They're somewhere in that messy little middle known as being human. Hmm. That's it. So Hmm. I went off. I apologize. No, that's good. Because it triggers another question about you have so many clients that you've walked through this process. And in coaching, we ask questions. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you really trigger the emotions of people is just like you said, how are you? Yeah. (laughs) Could just basically just break somebody down, right? (laughs) But in the process of the radical self-inquiry where we want to start to get get away from wearing these false masks and just Mm -hmm. being human, understanding that uh, it's not that bad. What would be some questions that we would want to ask ourselves now when we hold up the mirror? Here's a good one for a leader. Mm -hmm. What does success mean? What's failure? There are a lot of presumptions behind those words. You take any group of 30, 40, 50 people within a company and you ask for a definition of success, you're going to get very different answers. Here's a question to ask of oneself. What kind of leader would I like to be? And what kind of leader am I? Here's another one that's kind of tricky and nefarious. If my child were to come work for my organization, how would I feel? Because if the answer is not enthusiastic and proud, 
you may have a challenging culture. Mm. In your pursuit of your definition of success, you may be bulldozing human beings. That's a-okay with me. But if you're not willing to say that out loud, then what kind of culture are you building? You can say to the team, hey, we're going to build a team that is cutthroat, competitive, doesn't really care about human experiences, and is focused entirely on profits. Who's with me? Now, in the deafening silence that may follow, you may find your isolation exacerbated. Or you may not. It's not for me to judge. But if that's who you want to be, then be that. Don't tell the world that, or your employees, that they come first when they really don't. Because hmm. they will feel it. And you'll create toxicity in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back to a story uh, Jerry. So story time. There's so many examples in the book of, of some really successful founders of uh, some very, you know, very well-known startups. And not all of them were busy with their achievements, but it wasn't until they, you know, got to that sort of rude reboot awakening mm. that they discovered, okay, the kind of life that I, I want to have, or the kind of fulfillment that I want to have to become a good leader I need to give up some of these things. So what would be a, a really good story uh, for our listeners around these things of radical self-inquiry and rebooting? Well, uh, many of the folks that we're talking about, that many of the folks that I tell stories about, myself included, are often impacted. Those moments that you're referring to, there's usually a moment before the awakening, as you call it, before the rebooting, devastation of loss, of the whole facade cracking and falling apart. The great, brilliant uh, leadership writer Warren Bennis calls it a crucible moment, that moment when who we are as a person may or may not emerge because of the circumstances. And so we'll acknowledge that the forces feel like they're external, that they're acting upon us in that moment. I say feel like because they're often empowered by some internal structures. But the story that illustrates this best is the story of Chad Dickerson, the CEO at Etsy. And um, I tell the story of his tenure as CEO from the vantage point of the rooftop at Etsy's headquarters in downtown Brooklyn the night before he's supposed to announce to the world that he's been fired as CEO. And by the way, it was incredibly important to him that he tell the world he was fired, not taking a leave of absence to spend more time with his family. Right? Bullshit. And what I saw emerge from that crucible moment was the true depth of his character. Because up until the very last moment, the only thing he cared about 
was the truth, integrity, and his people. He was scared. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. But he worked until the very, very last possible minute to get the numbers right because this was a publicly traded company and they had to also simultaneously announce their numbers for the quarter. And all the language had to be right. People had to be taken care of. And he didn't have to do any of that. He could have just walked the hell away. That's character. That's strength. That's what emerged in that moment. Hmm. Now, the coda on that story, I tell a little bit of, at the end of the book what happens to him, but I'll tell more. Twice a week, he sends me a note. Today, I have never been so happy. I spend time with my son. He's building a home with his wife in Brooklyn. He is doing research into family. He's coaching on behalf of my company and working with young leaders. He is settled. He is in himself. And someday he might be a CEO again. Who the heck knows? But he has emerged stronger. More of himself. More of that boy who grew up a true son of North Carolina. Not a privileged kid attend, but going to Duke on a scholarship. That's his strength. So he's one of a number of people whose stories I tell. I tell his story at length because I had his deepest permissions around that. Mm. Yeah, that one really spoke to me as well, Jerry. Thanks for sharing that. <clears throat> you know, I've been um, sort of exploring this idea of uh, shame. Shame is not a topic that you would bring up in a business leadership conversation or podcast, but I've been looking more and more about how shame keeps us from fulfillment and, um, and maybe even from being an effective leader, because again, we might put a mask on to protect us from some kind of shame that is deeply rooted from our past. So let's talk a little bit about that. How, how does shame keep us from being a good leader we may not even be aware that we're a resounding yes to the mm -hmm. to the observation that you're making i completely agree that there's a relationship here and one of the forces at work in our childhood that get us to be complicit and compliant is shame another one is guilt they're kissing cousins but shame is, in my view, one of the most powerful forces. And shame threatens, to use the existential constructs that I lay out, love, safety, and belonging, shame threatens all three. Shame sends a very clear message. You don't belong to us. And therefore, you are unlovable. And therefore, life is not safe for you. Shame is incredibly insidious. And here again, if we go back to wisdom traditions, all right, there's a lot in wisdom traditions that teach us morality, 
there's a lot that teaches us to develop a conscience and a sense of right and wrong. I don't see a lot of language that says, and you should feel shame. In fact, when, when you know, to go to Christian mythology or Christian teachings for a moment, when Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, that's when they actually feel shame, right? It is not part of the essential nature of who we were born to be. We're not meant to feel shame. Mm. It is imposed upon us. Taking it forward, yes, in fact, shame becomes the material by which the masks are created, mm. right? So why I walk into a startup party of executives, oh, yeah, we got a great startup community, and everybody's bullshit and everybody else. Yeah, 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 we're crushing it, we're crushing it. Why? Because they're ashamed to say they're scared, they don't know what they're doing, right? Or worse, they're ashamed that they're not the kind of leader they think they're supposed to be, which is the one who has all of the answers, which is a myth that doesn't actually exist. The leader who has all the answers all the time and is perfect knowledge. But we measure ourselves against that, we fall short, and therefore we feel shame, which then threatens our love, safety, and belonging. Yeah. And that, I think, is what drives a lot of the mask and the story-making that passes for leadership. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree with me um, that shame runs a shotgun in the same car with fear? Because I, I always ask my guests the fear question from a leadership standpoint because we still see so much toxicity mm-hmm. in the workplace from leaders that just manage through the iron fist, you know, there's power and control and micromanagement and everything comes from the top down. You do as we say. So why is that? Well, Machiavelli said, right, it's better to be feared than loved. Um, we have been grappling with the relationship between fear and power. Uh, for millennia. Um, When I taught at a local university, I would always have my students read both Machiavelli's The Prince and Plato's Republic. Because in Plato, Plato speaks of the philosopher king, the wise elder who rules based on wisdom and love. And, uh, Machiavelli, the thing that people don't understand about Machiavelli was that he was a consigliere. He was a counselor. He was, to use a modern analogy, a hand of the king from Game of Thrones. His job was to say, here's how you play the game. And so that notion of iron-fisted management, deep control, micromanaging, that actually goes back to this notion that, to me, one of those powerful radical self-inquiry questions to ask is, do you believe it's a dog-eat-dog world? Or do you believe that human beings are basically good? Do you believe that human beings are basically bad or basically good? 
And it, everything divides from there. Because if you believe, as I do, that human beings are basically good, then your job as a leader is to bring out the best in them. And fear does not do that. I often say, you know, if you have a dog who's learning not to pee on the carpet, you have two choices. You can reward them when they don't, or you can wrap them on the nose with a rolled-up newspaper when they do, which is more effective. A little tidbit trains the brain to pee outside. It's just the way mammals are, <laughs> right? But because we misunderstand what Machiavelli was about, because we misunderstand the world, because we think that the world is like, if I got to get you before you get me, if that's the way we were raised, then we're going to turn to fear. Because what we're really masking is our own shame. For us to really understand that human beings are basically good, then that means I'm basically good. Hmm. And that may go against the programming of my childhood. And that's too hard. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, and I want to kind of transition to coming around the corner now as we wrap up here. And I want to give you a chance to uh, just address our listeners with what's tugging at your heart right now. Maybe something that's in the book or not in the book, something that you've heard or uh, something that you just want to say, you know what, if there's one thing our listeners can absolutely walk away from mm. that will make a difference in their lives, mm. what, what would that be? Well, I'll be honest, what comes to mind is the polarization that exists in our country right now. And uh, there's something that I ask clients to do all the time, uh, which may help in this moment which is that when we encounter what I refer to in the book as the irrational other, because others are always irrational, right? If we can ask ourselves, what need might they be meeting, trying to meet? Are they trying to meet a love, safety, or belonging need in their behavior? It can bridge that divide between them and us. And, you know, As I often say, there is no them. There's only the us who believe this and the us who believe that. And they believe that because they want to feel loved, safe, and that they belong. And I believe what I believe because I want to feel loved, safe, and that I belong. And so if we can bridge our differences in belief systems and understand that they're a broken human just trying to feel good, <laughs> then maybe we can overcome not just the divides that exist in our organizations, but even the divide that exists in our society right now. Yeah. Well, I have learned tons, and I know our listeners have too. So uh, if people want to get in touch with you, where do they go? Um, uh, the best place is rebootbyjerry.com. There's contact information, speaking information, all the stuff about the book. Um, and then if they're interested in working with the company, it's reboot.io. He is Jerry Colonna, and his brand new book is called Reboot. 
check it out. I highly recommend it. And Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. And thank you for such thought-provoking questions. That was one of those conversations that still has me thinking. And I recorded that conversation several weeks ago. There was a lot of wisdom there. And so here's one of my favorite takeaways. You don't get to cherry pick life experiences or what you get to feel. So you have two choices facing your feelings. You're either numb to them or you fully experience them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when emotions rise to the surface, don't run away from them. The tendency is to go faster. Jerry says, slow down and experience it. Whether it be doubt or overwhelm, accept it, be gentle with yourself, remove the mask, and understand that you are human. I want to thank Jerry for shifting our minds as only he can. And thank you, Love and Action Nation and the world, for joining the conversation. It is you that makes this podcast happen. So please share it, download it, and leave me a review on iTunes when you have a chance. Let me know how it hit you. Next week, I sit down with Harold McDowell, CEO of TD Industries, to talk about servant leadership and the amazing company culture at TD. See you next time, and don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.